this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan with I Change Justice podcast. And with us today on today's conference call is Debbie David. She's the 2023-2024 president of the Restorative Community Coalition. Welcome to the call, Debbie. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thanks so much, Joy. I am delighted to be here. And I am so excited about this year as president of the coalition. And it's a new period of time for us to bring solutions forward and make positive collaborative social change. Absolutely it is. One of the things that we have been doing for the past 13 to 16 years, actually, Irene started, founded the coalition in 2006. And she started out working at the level of helping people re-enter society after they came out of jail and prison. And at that time, all of the focus was just on what happens after you are incarcerated. But she had a background before that of working with homeless and people who had been displaced and dealing with self-esteem issues and had been doing a lot of work in other nonprofits. And then she decided to focus on just the incarcerated citizens because there was no real support services in the community. And this was the first reentry coalition in the state. And then you and I came along in 2010 and we started looking at, wow, what is this that our county and Whatcom County, which is up in the Northwest corner of the United States on the border between the US and Canada, we started looking at why is it that the jail industry was trying to build the school to prison pipeline all the way up and down I-5 and what was up about that. And we started looking at the costs of prison and many other things. And over the course of the last 13 years that we've been here, one of the things that I did because of the research that you'd been doing, Debbie, into trauma and mental health and special needs and all these other things, which is sort of your area of expertise, it caused me to start looking at what really does happen to people once they get in a in an accident or they get accused of a crime or they end up being arrested. What actually happens to people in the aftermath of an arrest? So one of the things that I did in 2018, 2019 is I did a study in Whatcom County on on what happens to people in the first 24 to 72 hours after an arrest. And it was fascinating because I ended up realizing that there were a lot of things that happened prior to an arrest that have nothing to do with actual crime. It's not like people go out, out of the 53 people I studied and interviewed and talked with, none of them had intended to commit a crime. They were not criminals. They were not bent on being criminals they actually ended up in accidents and they ended up with displacement and they ended up with various kinds of family upheavals. They got a job problem show up or a divorce happened 
And they ended up with deep, deep, deep stress. And that led to someone calling 911 often for their own safety. And then that seemed to just spawn other problems. So at the at the end of listening and talking to over 79 people, both the people who were arrested, their family members and caregivers and first responders and mental health professionals afterwards, I finally got the message that most people call 911 to get help, but a lot of people end up arrested instead. And then a whole litany of things happen, almost like a chain reaction that throws them and their entire family into a kind of traumatic, a civic cause type of traumatic shock. And then that leads to how do you fix the problem? And then that takes me directly to Debbie David who we're going to hear from now, because I want you to talk about your journey of learning how to think about all of these different things. And then what you're discovering, what you've been discovering the past couple of years, and certainly even in the last six months, about the plethora of things that are available to people who find themselves in this severe trauma situation. So welcome again to the call, Debbie David, and let's have you talk about start wherever you want, whether you want to start with ACEs or you want to start with your journey or you want to start right at the new services that are available. Thanks, Joy. And, you know, it's it's so fascinating to me because at the core of all of these issues that we find when 911 is called and there's a situation that law enforcement's responding to, it's people in a, predic- a predicament, basically. Um, and often what what arises as a predicament, sometimes it's a safety issue, is people's responses to stressors. Um, like you were referencing situations with job, divorce, um, family upheaval. And all of these are relational, relationship-based And one of the things I've listened by now to hundreds probably of hours of interviews that Dr. Gabor Matei has given. Dr. Gabor Matei is a retired physician from Vancouver, BC, had 20 years in family practice, seven years in palliative care um, with people who are at the end of life, uh, end of life care. And then 12 years in Vancouver, BC's most uh, heavily populated uh, part of the city with uh, intravenous drug users. And throughout his career, things that he learned from his patients, because he knew that the individuals before the the family circumstances and the individual patients before They became ill with whatever illness came along. Um, And then after, and he understood the history, he understood the family dynamics. And uh, what he learned was that throughout all of his observations and hands-on care was that when people did what they did, it was in response to abnormal, they were reacting with a normal response to an abnormal circumstance. And that always causes stress distru- stress and tension in people's lives, and then they make mistakes, right? Exactly. Um, two of the things that uh, Dr. Mattel 
to references that are stressors in people's lives are loss of control and uncertainty. And when we experience that, we can go into one of four responses. We can ask for help. We can flee the situation. We can fight back against the situation or we can give in and, and just fold and acquiesce to whatever's going on. And so it's, I find it very interesting that uh, when we can look at these situations, so I'm, I'm going to skip to, if, if you look in an environmental situation, if you have a plant and you're, let's say you've got a, a blooming flower in a pot and it's not thriving, um, you don't blame or punish the plant. You look at what is it, does it not have enough sunlight? Does it not have enough nutrients in the soil? Does it have not enough water? Or maybe it has too much water? You look at, you know, altering the environment to maximize the, the nourishment and the environmental needs that this plant has to have to thrive rather than, well, what's wrong with that plant? Let's, you know, put Bad it in a plant. box. Bad plan. Bad plan. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so humans are living, breathing individuals, you know, similar to the plant. And why is it that rather than we look at, okay, what can we do to support this person? What is it they're missing in their, in their social situation, in their family situation, whatever it may be. And all of these things come directly back to, um, adverse childhood experiences that actually began prior to um, birth. So go you know, ahead. It's funny. I had a young man that was one of my neighbors and he had attention deficit disorder and ADHD and they'd put him on Ritalin, you know, years earlier. And he was working with me one time in my office and I was talking with him about, you know, the prison industrial complex. And he was very interested because socio. Um, neuroscience and sociodynamic issues were on his agenda because he was he had friends who had been arrested and he was very interested in understanding what happens to people and he'd been doing a lot of research and he looked at me at one point and I said how do I explain this and he said well it's really simple Joy he said if you have teenagers in the house and what you want to do is you want them to grow up and be healthy people you sure as heck wouldn't put them in a cage and poke sticks at them for three years and expect them to come out and help you and become a good person and know how to navigate in life. Mm -hmm. He said, that doesn't make any sense. The kids would come out angry and mm -hmm. not want to talk to you and not know how to socialize and not, you know, not know all of these things. So what's up with that? And I just went, wow. You know, he said it we should yes very well very well put and an interesting piece to that that you mentioned attention deficit disorder dr matei himself was diagnosed in his 50s um, and one of the symptoms of attention deficit is tuning out you like you like disconnect and you some people are hyper but it's like you're disorganized you you disconnect and he did himself take stimulant medications for a period of time, and they did help. Over time, what he came to learn was that 
that particular behavior for him traced back to when he was an infant and he was born in January of 44 and during the Holocaust and uh, born in Budapest, Hungary. And he and his mother, his, his grandparents were killed at Auschwitz. His father was interned at forced labor. His mother was in a refugee camp and where they were staying was only could accommodate safely and healthily uh, about a hundred people. And there was almost 2000 people in this, oh. this camp. Wow. So one day in, and Gabor Mate was really ill as an infant and his mother didn't think she, he would survive. And one day he, she passed him off to a Christian stranger in the street to go get care and get well because she didn't know if he'd survive another day in the environment that they were in. And his mother kept a, a diary of, you know, during this time. And so he was, he was 11 months old when this happened and they were separated for six weeks. So basically in the infant's brain, all that they can do to make sense of that experience is that's abandonment. Mm -hmm. My mother and who gets abandoned? Somebody not wanted, not, not lovable unworthy and so i was trying to remember he he cited how many neurons are are wiring in those early years the brain is developing so rapidly and it's all based on information that comes from their environment and depending on what infants are exposed to that's how our brains get wired and that's how these adaptations for survival begin and then later in life, those adaptations that we needed to survive no longer serve us. We behave in certain ways that aren't relevant to our adult life, and it could create problems. So you're, him, saying, yeah. so you're saying that what he's discovered and what he's been able to factually prove based upon modern sciences is that his brain, because for six weeks he, his mother was missing in action, um, he was ill-equipped. His brain did not wire in the same way that it would have had she been able to be there and love and nurture and care for him in the way that she would have liked. Yep. So that leads us to another conversation, but we need to take a quick break here, Debbie, and we'll be right back to talk about more of the ACEs, PACEs, and solutions to trauma issues that are dealing with in our society today that are actually at the roots of so many of the social and societal dysfunction that follow an economic downturn. So we'll be right back. Thank you, Debbie. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our restorative community coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back to the call, Debbie David, who has been working and researching a lot on trauma-informed care and neurosciences and the effect of trauma, stress, and hurt on the mind and the behavior of people. So carry on, Debbie. What did you learn beyond learning all the stuff that you learned from Gabor Mate? Absolutely. So at the root of all this is the word trauma. 
and uh, we there's big T trauma and little T trauma. Little T trauma is not getting our needs met when we needed a specific uh, a response from our, our caregivers. The big T traumas are the things like um, severe neglect, intentional uh, uh, violence and abuse, um, you know, lack of lack of adequate food. Poverty is part of the big T traumas. And so when I focused on, well, now that we're aware of what can cause these, a multitude of which are considered behavioral uh, issues, and that's the term used more often now when it comes to mental illness than it is using, uh, you know, that people are mentally ill. It's their responses, their behavior are maladaptive and that's what can, can create problems for stability and and calm in their lives and productivity. So I started thinking about trauma and we because that's an area that Dr. Gabor Matei has researched, his most recent book, The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture, he took 10 years to write it he researched 25,000 peer review articles that are about trauma and its effects. And it, what I did with what I learned from, from his talks, his interviews, is just started doing my own independent research about, well, can we bring this knowledge and ways of recognizing it so we can address and heal the trauma into schools, into workplaces, etc. And I came across a toolkit that's called the Trauma-Informed Toolkit for Workplaces. It was uh, published this April. It's been updated a few times where additions have been um, added. But what's interesting about how they how this article and this toolkit um, starts to conceptualize ways in which we can have a more healthy workplace for all involved is attempting to integrate a biocracy. And I'm just going to read because I, I can't paraphrase as well and as succinctly as this article is. And so anyone you, hold on, hold on, hold on. A biocracy. That's different from a democracy, an autocracy, an aristocracy, all of these Aussies that are out there. <laughs> and you're talking about biocracy because when you when you look at bio means life and life force energy, biology. So when you're talking about that, you're talking about being informed with the biophysics or what's actually happening in the world around us is that I know you're going to go more into depth, but I just wanted it to put that in there that building a biocracy sounds really fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Well, the term was coined in the 1930s by a physiologist, um, oh. Walter B. Cannon, and he was um, using it in a hypothetical sense to apply it towards how organizations could function, but he was using it as the basis in comparison to the human body, like the cell, they each 
have a purpose and, and the organs in the body. And like a human body, um, it can become ill, but it also has the ability to heal and recover and thrive. Um, so I really loved this because it's when, when you look at what would serve the needs of living beings, having a system that is, that, that is living and adaptive and can grow and learn and heal compared to, you know, this also reminded me, Joy, of when you were talking about the um, Galtung's uh, violence. Yeah. Um, the structure. Yeah, yeah, the structural. If you look at how our systems, they're, they're, it's an institution and it's rigid and it's static. It it's, does not adapt to human need and human growth and human life. Well, and so, Galtung is the fellow who was, Johan Galtung was the fellow in Norway when that massive shooting happened and his daughter was actually involved in there. And he started really looking at conflict theory and how it contributes to global war. And then he backed up and he developed also that Galtung's violence triangle. And then that overlays, believe it or not, the dark triad of psychopathic and Machiavellian and narcissistic behavior. So one is a philosophy. One is an analysis of what happens in the biosphere or the, bi you know, the biological atmosphere that people are living inside, inside our democracies or our our cultural systems and our political systems. And then that rolls down to create symptoms and behaviors in our culture that also create conflict. And then that perfect perpetuates war and that creates more trauma. And then we're in a negative spin cycle going down into degenerative conditions. And we can actually see that in our economy. And it's really affected us over the past few years as, as our country and as the world was dealing with the COVID crisis and there were emergencies and high stress conditions, it really led to civic trauma cycles that just perpetuated almost like a chain reaction across our culture. So I didn't mean to intercept you, but that I really like that phrase, biocracy, and I think we're going to use it a lot more. Absolutely. And another thing that, because you were talking about what it costs us, um, in dollars, in real dollars. And mm -hmm. this article, this toolkit also cites some statistics that, that have, um, that have, you know, the sources listed at the end of the article, but the mental health conditions are estimated to cost employers in the United States up to $193.2 billion annually in lost earnings due to absenteeism and presenteeism, which that I'm going to have to look up because I don't know if that just means that they're physically on the job, but they're not probably performing like uh, they would had they not been dealing with mental health issues. The other one is anxiety and depression cost the global economy over a, a $1 trillion in lost productivity yearly. And workplace stress caused U.S. employers $500 billion annually in lost productivity. Well, you just know, you, hold on. If you just add to that... What happens to blight in inner cities when people are depressed and they're living homeless and they're dealing with addiction issues and the side effects of all this 
depression and stress and damage, you're talking about, you know, inner city blight permeates our culture today and it's leading to all these additional costs. So if you actually do reverse engineering or reverse economic degeneration, the Mm -hmm. real cost of stress and trauma on humanity is quadrupling and I don't even know if quintupling or whatever that is, but it's a compound escalating economic loss that is permeating our society. Absolutely. And again, to address these, when there are tools that exist, one of the, um, what they, they utilize the best scientific evidence known as NEAR, which is an acronym that stands for Neuroscience, Epigenetics, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Resilience. They use those research science-based to do uh, avoidable harm, build resilience, promote healing, engagement, and empowerment. So the, the thing, just continuing to bring these, they're out there. Solutions exist, and it's getting our leaders to embrace this and go yes you know we can do this that we can learn we can adapt we can we can create and engage in a biocracy in a living system that serves living beings i absolutely believe we can do this i know deb that back in 2015 our coalition at one point in order to uh raise awareness in the community because the movement was to build this massive jail here and our coalition, you and I and and Irene especially, working with a few other of our members, we started looking at what are all the things that we could be doing differently so that we would not have to increase the demand on the jail. What if we could take 20 or 30 or 50% of the people out of the jail and put them back to work successfully? And we started looking for solutions. And, you know, when you did a lot of the research that showed how we could do wet houses, how we could do intervention, how we could do all these different things, this phrase, this information about trauma-informed policies, practices, you know, this whole conversation didn't even exist back in 2015. That's right. You were doing your research, did it? I didn't see it. Nope, it wasn't. Nope. And as I was referencing this, article was just published April of 2023. So uh, it's a movement that's growing and it needs to be, um, it needs to be put into place across all types of workplaces, but especially in our educational systems, in our legal systems, everywhere. We need, we need to saturate it. It references that we need to move this momentum forward, healthcare, education, the legal system, journalism, and more. And so, yeah, and and part of it is just bringing it it to light, because these are the kinds of things that unfortunately, we don't see in the headlines in news. Look at what we can do. You know, look at this. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of disparity. Like I was looking at one of the statistics here, they talked about is 71% of surveyed employers believed they supported employee mental health well, or very well. But by contrast, only 27% of the team members agreed. And they yeah. have a statistic here, 97% of surveyed CEOs said all level of their organization were empathetic to employees' mental health. 
and yet only 69% of the team members agreed. So the disparity in belief versus reality in the problem versus solutions, there's a big gap in communication here. So this is one of the things I know when we started working on this, Debbie, back then, we had to do a lot of research to dig up information on what, how much does it actually cost to incarcerate, put them into the prison system, keep them in jail. And we discovered that sometimes, you know, if you arrest somebody young and they don't get trauma-informed care, they don't get help or they don't get help getting out of the system because they never intended to cause harm before they went in. Yep. You know, that's the optimal point where we should turn it around. Otherwise, they can cost taxpayers a million or $2 million to keep people Absolutely. cycling through the system. It's a heck of a lot more useful and productive to do trauma-informed care up, up front. Absolutely. And what you were um, talking about in the disparity between how the employers felt that they were doing a good job and then the employees, what their response was to having you know their mental health needs supported and addressed by their employer. That is a really good example of, um, in, a, in a sideways way, and I'll explain, person-centered planning. Mm -hmm. So person-centered planning is where, and, and the, this has evolved out of the maximizing care for people that um, are uh, intellectually, disabled, often uh, physically disabled, and need support with what's called activities of daily living. And often what would happen historically in supporting individuals with these needs is things were being done to them instead of with them and for them. It was not with their input or with their, even with their permission oftentimes. And I'm not, it's not to say that the people supporting these individuals weren't well-meaning. That's not what I'm saying here. It's just that they had a perception of, well, this person that, that isn't able to make their bed themselves, I'll just make it for them and then problem solved. But that creates a, a sense of loss of control and loss of self, you know, poor self image loss of self-respect because the person already often is aware that they're not able to do a lot of things and it impacts them in a way that they'll engage less. So when we engage people, it's meeting them where they're at, supporting them and what's meaningful to them and not doing for them what they don't need or want. So it's instead of doing it over them and and disempowering them even further, what you do is you find out what they can do, help them learn how to do what they can do better and better and better, and then only fill in the needs where they cannot do things. So this is about managing people's self-worth and their self-esteem and their capacity to grow and become more and more and more capable. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that also speaks um, volumes to when you see what are supposed to be committees that are um, put together to solve problems, yet you don't see individuals represented on those committees 
that are the the uh, target group that you're trying to serve. If they're not part of those solutions, that's the same thing that you're doing. You're doing things to that group, not for them and with them. And that, again, brings into play the person-centered planning. So it's interesting. We we need to take another break here for a minute, Deb, but let's come t- come back and let's talk about how do we make that pivot to thinking about helping people who may have been hurt, may have been wounded, may have been mentally uh, compromised, may have been arrested or caused an accident or had problems that they created. How do we make that pivot so that we can help them become more productive, reduce the cost to the community, and rebuild our society. Let's return in just a minute with Debbie David, who has been doing a lot of research in this subject. Are you a member of Patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts? As a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis. Welcome back, Debbie. Let's start at the beginning, sort of. When you started learning about this, you had family members who you were affiliated, you know, you were dealing with that were dealing with extreme trauma in their lives and mental illness issues and incarceration issues. What were the first things that you learned when you were living around and about people that were dealing with this stuff? That's a really good question, Joy. And I think as much as anything, it's about when interacting with people that are struggling is they're not able to always speak to what they need. So there's there's interaction that is also observation to see what they're capable of doing and maybe things that they're missing. Sometimes they, they have organizational issues or they miss appointments because they're just feeling very overwhelmed and they can't focus. Um, it's like I referenced before, is meeting them where they're at. And as a high-functioning person, engaging with someone that's struggling, what I try to do is just observe and just reaffirm where I can, what is, you know, is it comfortable for you if I can help you in this way? Um, what, What would this feel like if I if I offered support in this way it's any a different way to engage that's done respectfully but also very um I'm I'm struggling for the word here um it is non-invasive it's respectful it's interesting I had an experience one time when I was working with somebody who was crippled Okay, in a wheelchair. And my presumption that it would help them if I opened the door for them and if I did this and if I did that, that that was helpful. Because in my world, that would be considered polite. But in his world, he went, you know, he actually acted uncomfortable with it. And so I stopped and I said, you know, I just assumed that you would like help. Would you prefer I not do that? Is there something else I can do to either serve or not do anything? You know, tell me what you need. 
And he looked at me with such gratefulness and he said, yes, I've been trying to learn how to navigate this and to do this for myself. So yeah, I would rather if you just wait a minute and let me see if I can do it. And I went, wow. And so I felt better, but it was because I had the awareness enough to pay attention to what his body language was and then consider asking him straight up, am I helping or not helping? Am I in your way or is this good or not good? What do you want? Yes, because people don't like everything. Not everybody likes everything done for them. Mm-mm. They like to feel like they have a, a sense of control. It's it, it's an empowering feeling when they can do what they're capable of doing, or even if they can't yet, if they can modify ways that work for them, it needs to be about the person. And again, the person-centered, person-centered living at what works for them is, and, and I'm going to put a qualifier on it too. It's like, well, within limits, because if, it can't be something that works for them, but it invades on another person's boundaries sure. or, you know, is disrespectful to some other person. So it's a supportive way that is within that person's um, personal space and his circle, his or her. And, um, and, and being somewhat intuitive, um, which is also comes back to when, when we are functioning from, our authentic selves we are able to pick up on these cues and so many people today we've been conditioned out of trusting that dr matei talks about our our gut feelings there's not a baby on the planet that doesn't know what their gut feeling is it tells them if they're hungry gassy you know need to be changed and they communicate by crying and they have different cries and over time if they don't get their needs met, they don't cry in the same way anymore. They give up. So let's talk about the really urgent problem, which has to do with homeless people and the presumption. I mean, it was it was incredible. I was listening to a judge one time who was leaving a task force meeting that I was attending. And he was apologizing for leaving the meeting early to all of these judges and these people who were part of his peer group. And he said you know, I have to leave and go, go babysit all the little kitties who come into my courtroom. And I went, that is the most insulting thing. And I thought, wow, what if that's the attitude? I wonder if that's the attitude for most of these people. I was referring to the professionals who have to work with these guys in the courtrooms. And I started doing some inquiries and I was actually quite shocked to find the presumptions of most of these people. That's actually one of the reasons I ended up doing that study is because most of the people who work in the city have this presumption that a lot of the people who end up in their courtroom are mentally handicapped, are mentally ill, are addicted, do have drug problems, do have this or do have that. So their presumption of innocence is out the window to to start. They have a presumption of incapacity and so their job is just to babysit and, and pacify everybody and keep them running through the circle. And I started looking at that and I went, how arrogant and presumption presumptuous of them is that? But when I did that needs assessment, that study, yes. I realized that by the time most of the people working in the system see the people who came through the system, they were not there at the point of a 911 call. 
they were not right. there at the point of an arrest. They were not there when the person was traumatized by because he had gotten in an accident. And maybe he killed somebody. Yeah. And he didn't mean to. He made a mistake. And so the lack of understanding of what happens to people when we're traumatized is, I think, one of the biggest things that I've learned from working with you, Debbie. Talk about that. You know, people will often criticize people for not having empathy, but if they don't even know what, how, how can they have empathy that as a professional, you don't even know happened? Well, and that's hopefully what the trauma informed toolkit for the workplace can serve in order to educate these individuals, like the judges that you use, that, that, that one judge that you could use the example. And um, there's, I know that there's a, poverty simulation that is being done in certain areas that are supposed to help inform the public about what it's like when you've got, you know, not enough food to make it through the week. How are you going to manage? And so as I continue to dive into this trauma-informed toolkit, I'm hoping to learn more about how these kinds of concepts can be um, taught and offered made available to our our leaders, our our judges, our schools, our law enforcement. There's there are parts of the country that are much more um, caught up to what this trauma informed type of interaction is. And we can get there too. It's it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of the the public demanding it of our leaders and of our, our law enforcement. They are our paid for by tax, their salaries are paid for by tax dollars. We need to speak speak to this, raise our voices. Well, you know, what's interesting is that we just went through three years of extreme economic crisis. And what that did is that put people into lockdown. It put them into places where they were separated from family when their family was ill and went into the hospital and died. There was isolation and grief and sadness and shock. And then people went along and they lost careers, they lost businesses, they lost family members, they lost their housing. You know, there were this whole pile of cascading ripple effects that was trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And then at the back end of it, when the people who were living homeless who had no resources and were asking for help, and then our emergency services divisions in, in our case, locally, a lot of them did not respond appropriately because they're used to responding better to a, an actual disaster than they are to responding to an economic or socioeconomic or civic disaster. That isn't even on the, on the CERT training, I don't think. You did CERT training, Deb. What do you have to say about that? And I want to let you know you've got about two minutes to wrap it up here. But what do you know about civic training is there any civic training out there for economic disasters when i took the cert training which is a number the original was a couple of decades ago and i've just done refreshers since then it's focused primarily on natural disasters like earthquakes um, floods uh, tornadoes fire but not socioeconomic and that is so desperately needed because that's not an area that they are no place in the country that I'm aware of. And it's it, it definitely we can do this. It's, it's a matter of 
existing skills that we we can transfer into applying to how we can serve the needs of those that are in socioeconomic distress. It, it can so, be done. So this is one of your platforms and one of your desires coming on as this president who's going to be working with us over the next year as we come out of this trauma. What are your last comments about that? Well, I would just tell everyone listening that our communities can thrive and be healthy and we can each play a part and the future is bright as as we move forward towards 2024. We're more than halfway through 2023 and keep listening to our our podcast here and more will be shared and resources will be coming online very soon. And thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you for taking the courage, having the courage yourself to do the work, all the individual work you've done, but having the insight and the foresight to continue to study and learn and add up piece after piece after piece. We will have for you listeners, you can go to the restorative community.org. And you can look at a lot of the research that we've done. You can look at videos that where we've interviewed or whether where we've gathered powerful videos that talk about restorative justice, regenerative economics. We've done conferences, we've done events. And Debbie is the perfect person to lead us into the next year in the aftermath of all these years of extreme COVID and economic and socio civic trauma. Thank you very much, Debbie. And we'll have a, we'll say goodbye to you, our audience and listeners. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At the restorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.